Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, Joe Slack, and joining me today is Jeff Irving. Jeff is a lifelong gamer, artist, and dreamer, as well as an entrepreneur, graphic designer, and writer. He's also a fan of fantasy novels, board and video games, rock music, and karate. Jeff, thanks so much for being here on the Board Game Binge. Oh, Joe, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm honored to be here. Awesome. Well, uh, Brandon Rollins, who is a mutual friend of ours, uh, got me in touch with you, and I we had a little chat earlier, and I'm interested in getting more into your game, uh, but maybe first you can tell the listeners and viewers uh, the story of how you got into board gaming and how that how you turned your interest into designing board games. Well, uh, obviously, as a young man, I loved games. I, I kind of started out uh, with first edition D&D. Uh, was kind of one of the first uh, forays into like fantasy type gaming. I mean, of course, you, you know, you have all the family games like Monopoly and Clue and and the ones that you find in most people's closets. But my my first entry into something that, that I found extremely compelling was first edition D&D, which is, I know, telling my age a little bit, but... <laughs> uh, but that's that's where it all started, and uh, I, my interests in board gaming uh, specifically kind of grew out of I just love fantasy. I, I you know I, I like sci-fi real well too, but fantasy is just my happy place. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you, you know, so let's see. Beyond that, Hero Quest back in the day, um, the first Dark uh, Dark Tower, which you know a lot of people kind of make fun of it today because it was so primitive, but it was back then it was so magical. So that's, that's kind of my, that's where I kind of wet my teeth on, on board games was those. Nice. Well, I mean, the dark tower has made a resurgence. I mean, restoration games brought it back and quite popular. And a lot of people have been enjoying that experience, you know, that big tower on the table and uh, with dungeons and dragons. I mean, I, I grew up doing some Dungeons and Dragons as well. My brother got me into it when I was, you know, a teenager, maybe even before that. And, uh, you know, played some adventures, created a few of my own and got back into it a bit again as a young adult. But, uh, you know, it's been, been a while since I played. So yeah. a little bit of a connection there with D&D. I've, I've aspired to play. I mean, I've, I've even rebought sets of books, but I just don't have a friend group. So I ended up kind of browsing through the books and reminiscing and seeing all that had changed. And then I ended up handing them off to my daughter. <laughs> so, Very good. Yeah. Well, so the uh, the game you're working on right now, Vrahod, um, can you tell us a little bit about it and how it came to be? Sure. Um, like you said, as a college student, um, I had played so many games, and I was and I was pretty well read. You know, I was reading all the the popular authors at the time. You know, Robert Jordan, David Eddings, um, Stephen R. Donaldson. Uh, Modisit. Um, I just really, really enjoyed the kind of variety that the fantasy authors were providing, but it didn't seem to kind of translate over into gameplay, um, which, which to me seemed a little tropey. You know, everything had its, you know, Tolkien or had its um, Gary Gygax stamp on it as to what was kind of approved fantasy. And so I just, I kind of began to, as a creative um, I just kind of began to imagine what a, a fresh take on a fantasy world might be like, kind of almost imagining it as an author. And in fact, I, I had every intention of, of writing the, the story arc of Rahod into three novels and felt like that's what it would take. 
And, you know, and I, and I have done a lot of writing and I'm, you know, I'm published in, you know, with some poetry and some little things here and there, but I labor over writing. It's, it's not that fun for me. And I really felt like I wanted to do justice to the world in my head. And so I had to, um, at some point I just had to yell uncle and invite people in that are smarter and more talented than myself. And, and so that's kind of where this latest iteration, uh, of the, of the Brahood series came, how it came about. Um, I had done one, one board game, um, prior, um, that I took through to prototype. And it was also based on the world of Brahood. It was called the Brahood and Chronicles. And it was more of a kind of a, an access and allies homage done in a fantasy style where, um, fantasy generals would lead um, mixed uh, unit armies or, or brigades, and the power of those leaders would then augment the abilities of the troops under their command. And I just really love Axis and Allies for its just sheer dice-chucking joy, you know, uh, five rolls for a four or less, four for a three or less, you know, that kind of just mass, mass numbers of units. And so I thought, man, wouldn't that be fun in a fantasy setting? And so I, de I developed it through to um, to prototype as, you know, thousands of us out there have, you know, have, have spent time and money to, to build these things that are so expensive. And I sent it off to Fantasy Flight and they, they really were very complimentary. They said it was the, you know, one of the prettiest prototypes they'd ever seen, but it was also a $150 game and they were making $12 games at that time. <laughs> And so I, I simply chalked it up to a, a very, very important learning experience for me. Um, I, I began to understand that the power of words and wording in rule books is exponentially greater than that when you read a novel. Because when you read a novel, you're taking away what the writer has given you and you're just kind of experiencing through the mind's eye what's happening. But if you change uh, the tense of a word, if you say player instead of hero, it changes the way the game plays. And so I began to understand on a much greater level that rule books are a lot like electrical schematics in that everything has to refer cleanly to other rules within that to create a system that's airtight. And so it was just, a, it, it really was a necessary process for me to go through to actually say, I'm, I, I can design a game that's fun because before it was, like I said, it was just such a learning experience. Yeah. That's interesting. When you're talking about uh, pitching to fantasy flight and showing them your game and, and uh, realizing that what you created may be really cool, but you know, way out of their price point. Oh yeah. And, uh, and, and also goes to show uh, when you're making a game, it's, it's not just the game. You want to create a great game, a great experience, but it also is a product. Um, and you have to think about it as a product. What's it going to cost Absolutely. to have this made? Is it actually going to be something that people can afford? Uh, will people perceive this as a good value? All those types of things. So um, I'm sure those are some of the lessons that you took away from that when you're when you're building Verhode. But um, maybe Absolutely. you can talk a little bit more about with Verhode um, what the gameplay is actually all about. What do what do players play as, and what are they trying to accomplish in the game? Right. Well, we have. Um... One of the things that we've really strived to do with Brahood is we're marketing it as a game system, um, first and foremost, because in our in our uh, development efforts, we've tried to 
give ourselves as storytellers the most robust toolkit we can in order to, to have players enjoy an experience that's not like what they've had. And so in, in order to do that, in going down that kind of game system rabbit hole, one, the rules, the right, the, the rules have to be tight. They have to play well. There can't be a lot of gaping holes where it's like, okay, what do we do now? And so it all started with developing that toolkit and making sure that that basket of rules could then be applied to various play modes because this is a big project and it has multiple play modes. We have, um, we have about 520,000 words in our series and 240 of that, 240,000 of those words happens in the core box. So we have this really thick, just campaign book. And then we have a really thick, just quest book. And then we have another small uh, get, get started and, and concise rule guide that also has some kind of a directory of mini quests called commissions. And that's for the people that just don't care about campaigns. They don't have a regular gaming group and they don't want to commit to long chains of quests that take months. So we just develop this, this, these multiple play modes, multiple difficulty levels, and, um, and also lots and lots of scaling and tiering mechanisms so that the gameplay is challenging and exciting for one player and can be soloed, but also just as engaging and yet different for six players. And so, you know, there, there was a lot of goals that went into developing the system and that's, um, and that's taken some time. Um, but as far as who do you play in Brahode, well, this this is a new take, a fresh take on a fantasy world. And we don't have any humans, elves, dwarves, dragons, undead, demons, none of that. Because we 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 want to create, recreate that experience that you and I had when we first played DD, where we, you know, and the DM said, there's a kobold in the hallway. And you're like, oh, is it friendly? It can it kill me. And you have you have no clue, but that's where we're putting people. We're saying, okay, you're gonna you're gonna play unfamiliar heroes in an unfamiliar world against unfamiliar enemies. There's gonna be layers and layers of mystery and lies that have to be uncovered for you to move through the story arc and even through the quests. The, the quests are are brilliant, and and that's one of the things I'm I'm proudest of, and I can say this because it's not my work, is Sean Allen Dressler, our writer. He is amazing. And he has, he's embraced the lore of Rahod in a way I never, I, I could have, couldn't have done it. And so um, we, if you choose to play the campaign though, we have a central character called Kaltiran. And that is a prophesied one who has been foretold uh, to rise from one of these 10 crafted races of the world who would um, throw down the conquistadors and save the world and become a beneficent ruler. And so uh, it's a neat mechanic because the, the victory condition of the core box is to help is literally just to help the prophesied one fulfill the prophecy. And you do that as you can do it solo, or you can do it as a group. And the further into the story you get, the more the enemies are beginning to kind of, focus and try to thwart the Kaltiran character from fulfilling the prophecy. And so it ends up becoming almost like an escort mechanism or a, or a, a tower defense. 
because you've got to keep you've got to keep this prophesied one alive or everybody loses. Interesting. Um, so how would you say uh, Verhoot is different from other similar games out there? You talked about the, you know, unique uh, characters you play and that type of thing. Um, in terms of gameplay, what what else uh, is different from other games out there? Well, I, you know, I sat down uh, just recently, we went to our first convention and we, and we did some um, demos of, of Rahod and um, everyone went crazy. And I was so humbled and honored by the reaction to, um, to combat, to the way our, our mechanisms work. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, our combat is we give, we give up on some realism we give up on some tactical detail so that we can have fast, fun, and consequential combat. If you're looking for something that is really, really tactical and detailed, Vrahot is not that. It, it's just, it, you've got lots of choices to things you can do, but none of those choices are really hard to wrap your head around. In fact, we kind of intentionally avoid undue words and complex iconography just for in lieu of just straight language we just tell you what something does there's no like star symbol star symbol turn then if explosion underscore tilde star two you know it's not that it's not that cryptic thing where you've got to refer to a rule book just to understand and, and i'll give you a good example i think bard sung was one that i really enjoyed recently but it was a little, the iconography was a little bit uh, cryptic for me. And I just would have preferred for myself just more straight talk on, on what, what is this card telling me? And I think a lot of games really do that because it saves, it, it, it makes things airier. You know, it takes longer to, to spell out with words what an icon can do if once you wrap your head around what they all mean. But we want our game system to be accessible. Um, even though it's marketed at 14 plus, we want a tenure, the average 10 year old to be able to grasp it readily and to not have to worry that they don't understand because they can read. They can, you know, at that age, they can soak up all the stuff we're giving them. Um, so that's kind of what we're we're hoping for anyway. But to talk about the gameplay, that's one of the really unique things about our world is that we have eight distinct biomes in the world from mountains to, to you know, to marsh river, coastal areas, um, oceans. We have vast underlands. Each of those is treated differently with the math. The math is very different in those. And so like, if you go into a plains region, the enemies that you could potentially face there, the threats are different than they will be in the forests. The creatures will be different. Um, they will behave differently. I think a great example is uh, Darkest Dungeon when it was on PC. Every time you would go into a new area of the Darkest Dungeon, the creatures there would have a proclivity towards a certain type of attack. Like some of them might, a lot of them might be have poison. And over in this area, a lot of them are causing bleed. You know what I mean? And, and so we do that through... Um, changes in in math um, in all the decks that we have and there's 22 decks um, in the core box that then get subdivided and augmented added to later in the series for a total of 55 decks of cards now 
when I say, you know, 55 decks, some of those that get added later might be eight cards, hmm. you know, that get added into play. But our, our story, our gameplay is very card driven. We felt like the variety of outcome, the immersiveness um, comes from a robust deck of cards more than it can a die roll. Um, even if you're referring to a table, to me, it made more sense to have the cards tell the tale and 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 allow the game to run itself. Because we don't we don't need you don't need a game master to play our game. You mm -hmm. can just you can sit down with your friends and play as a group. That's a huge benefit too. To not have one person set aside that has to know all these rules and can't really join in. You, you can all play. I had one guy at convention though say, I really liked having you there. And is it, can we house rule that? And I said, absolutely. If you want to have somebody do the enemies, play the enemies so that you guys can play. Absolutely. It's not, it's not a problem at all. It's an easy job. You know what I mean? To do it. It's, but it is, it, it's, it's probably more fun to house rule being a GM for our system than it would be in a lot of other stuff because our rule system, that basket prevents those left turns that your players take where you're not prepared. Our game will always know what the left turn is because the cards dictate that. Well, they could just pack you into the box. So when they open it up to play, you're right there to, to show them, right? <laughs> of course. Exactly. <laughs> now, when we talked um, prior to this interview, you mentioned that you created uh, the Harbinger 3D gaming terrain system for this game. Can you elaborate on what this uh, system is? Absolutely. In fact, do I have it down here? I don't. I put it up. Okay, so the Harbinger, the Harbinger was actually the catalyst for this iteration, for this final realization of Rahod in a game system that plays like I hoped it would. You know, the one the one I told you I did a long time ago for Fantasy Flight, that was more of a, of a of a war game. But this world is best served by a cooperative group of heroes trying to enjoy the story, enjoy the differences between the, the types of biomes and doing that together. Um, but the Harbinger system was the catalyst. And what it what it is, it's very, very simple because I'm not an engineer, but I knew from all the games that I play, and if I showed you, I don't have the biggest wall of games, so I can't really brag. Yours behind you is probably 10 times what my closet is. But um, I wanted to create a different experience for players in in dungeon settings, um, subterranean you know, caverns, things like that. And so I came up with this very simple system of room and hall tiles and stairs and stair risers, and then stair treads that plug into the stair units that actually allow miniatures to functionally use the stairs. Because that's the biggest problem with stairs, right? When they're to scale, well, a miniature can't sit on a little bitty step that wide. So I introduced these, they're clear stair treads. So when the stair unit is sitting there on the table with those clear treads, it still just looks like a normal stair, but then your, your miniatures can actually climb those and pay the appropriate movement costs to do that. And so the system kind of grew out of that desire. And our system, it does it does one thing well. <laughs> it, it creates a 3D environment that focuses just on the floor, just on the artwork. Uh, full color artwork is applied to all the pieces. Um, it focuses just on that. The grid for movement is right into the artwork. Um, we don't mess with walls much. Um, you know, you we do have wall clips, 
So if you had a point of interest, let's say you were trying to solve a puzzle in a room, well, we might put a wall in that room, show you that wall where that puzzle is, but that's the only wall you're going to see. Um, so, and then it, it, ha it had to be done affordably. It had not use a lot of materials. It had to be stable. It had to be fun to put together and take apart and not a burden. And then we also understood that the Harbinger system could not replace or wasn't designed to replace tabletop. It was designed to augment it and to make it more exciting. And, and so it doesn't stack because no one wants to fish under something to move a miniature. It sprawls. And so like if you had a nice, say, 18-inch um, dungeon map, you could set the Harbinger system on top of part of it and then lay in a couple blocked hall uh, tokens, or you could build it next to it. But it's just another powerful tool in that storytelling arsenal so that we could create the dynamic space, interior spaces we wanted to, but then also to give that to our content creators so that they have that toolkit to create their own adventures too. Very cool. Yeah, it's, uh, it sounds like a really interesting system. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's take a step outside of War Games for uh, just a moment, a little diversion, because uh, something else I learned about you from your bio is that you won a statewide karate competition in 2000 by posing as a cat. And I'd love to hear the story behind this. The cat stance. Yeah. Well, the um, I my nephew Nick and I were taking uh, karate from uh, it was uh, Shorinru uh, Okinawan Shorinru karate and a little bit of Shaolin Kempo kung fu mixed in there, and we really enjoyed the club. And we and our sensei was insistent that we would learn quicker and do better if we would agree to compete for the school. And so um, Nick and I went through this, the season and we got, you know, we got better. Now, granted, we aren't black belts. We weren't anything like that. We were in the novice category, which is the yellow, blue, purple belts. You know what I mean? The, the guys at the bottom that are the most dangerous because they actually can get hurt. <laughs> <laughs> but I went through the, the state and like it was near the end of the season and my nephew and I were neck and neck. He was in a different age group than me, but we were both, we had a shot at winning our age brackets in the state. And then he blew out his knee. So I went on to finish the year and, um, and won uh, the state as a novice, a novice male from age 18 to 45 at that time. I qualified for that age group. <laughs> So how did the cat pose come come about? Okay, now I'll, I'll show you this cat stance. So basically, when someone comes up to you, um, you know, a lot of times you're you're a bit sideways this way, and they'll tend to they'll tend to overbear you. They come at your head and shoulders to get you know to add their weight to you and take you down. And so the cat stance basically you're kind of you're rotating the, the forward foot, and you're putting your heel towards them, and then you're coming underneath with a fist to the groin. And it is it is one of those things that I don't care who I came up against in, in Kumite, that move would always surprise them and get a point for me. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. I was dangerous. I knew just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> That's what they say, just enough. And also probably just enough to get hurt, just like your, your nephew did with the knee blowing out. He did. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so... 
you also owned uh, three computer stores in your early 20s and 30s. So I'm interested to know um, what you learned from that experience and if you're able to uh, take any of that experience and uh, build it into what you're doing with Verhote and has that helped you in any way? I've got to say absolutely because, I mean, the first the first place I opened was essentially just a closet. I mean, it was a little bitty store um, in a strip mall. Um, it was called Dream Realm Software. And people, people were just starting to commonly have PCs at home. Hmm. And, um, and so I, some of the first games I sold were on floppy even still, you know, and, and for, I, I made money somehow, you know what I mean? I couldn't believe it, but, but I had enough interest and, and, uh, enough customers that I actually made money at it, paid my rent and, 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 you know, was able to give myself a modest, a modest salary. Um, and then, and I was 23 when I started that first business, I was there for a couple of years. And then I, there was a, a computer store on the main drag of our town and they wanted me to move in with them and handle the entertainment stuff, the gaming and, uh, you know, kind of help them sell more game oriented PCs because they did the computers and the networking side of it. Well, I moved in there and began to do that. And of course, sales went went up with that move. But then it was found out that they hadn't been paying any taxes for, I think, three years. And so I stayed and the bank came in and took all their inventory away. And I just bought their inventory back from the bank, you know, at like 10 cents on the dollar and just kept going. And we grew from there. And then finally, we ended up, uh, we called that Irving Computing. And then we finally ended up in our in our local mall. Um, that was our kind of high gloss retail approach to a computer store. And we did very well for, I think we did very well for three years. The last two years got really tough. Um, you know, the tech bubble burst and we were caught like everyone else was holding the keys. And so ultimately I just had to throw, I had to throw the keys to the, to the mall manager and say, well, we just can't do it anymore. Um, but it was, I mean, I loved, I, you know, my, my interest in gaming never waned. It was so fun to be a gamer during that first, you know, when the, I mean, lands of lore, uh, command and conquer Diablo one. I mean, just the, Warcraft, the very first Warcraft. I mean, there was some neat stuff back then. Um, but yeah, my, it, it definitely continued to feed my interest for um, fantasy and for gaming. And I have absolutely been influenced by my time as a computer store owner, for sure. Fantastic. So maybe we can wrap up by you uh, telling us anything else about uh, Verhoed, maybe that we haven't covered yet and then uh close with letting people know where they can find out more about it great um well i mean we were, we're kickstarting um october 3rd through november 1st that's the the plan is to do that we i i am told by brandon and others uh that we are a little ahead of schedule for that goal um so i definitely won't be moving it up <laughs> In fact, I'm still inclined to move it back if more work is needed and it's not it's not passing muster. I want to release a very good product. Um, we are uh, releasing 
the Kaltiran Ascension, which is the core box, along with three expansions, which are the Enlightened and the Enslaved, Facing the Storm, and the False God's Deceit. Um, it's a huge story arc. Every, uh, every box of the series comes with new encounter maps. It comes with a new quest book and campaign book. It comes with more miniatures. It comes with another large chunk of different room and hall tiles that have a whole different coloration to them so that, you know, content creators, I mean, obviously we're using them for our stories and the expansions, but content creators can create these beautiful, colorful three-dimensional dungeons uh, with the Harbinger. Um, but let me, th let me think anything else I haven't covered. Um, we, we, also, in addition to the Harbinger and all the miniatures, which there's over 100 miniatures just in the core box and over 151 unique sculpts in the series, um, there's almost 700 pieces of plastic, but those also include pegs and risers and room and hall tiles. Um, we also have ter a terrain miniature set. Again, another, another tool for storytellers. If you we have tokens that allow you to do to modify terrain on the encounter maps based on the stories if you're questing or in the campaign. But then if you want to do uh, three-dimensional terrain miniatures like boulders and tree trunks and walls and fountains and wells and things, things like that, we also give you um, some of that uh, if, you, if you prefer to use three-dimensional terrain miniatures instead of tokens. Um, but all of that is, that's basically um, what we're doing in a nutshell. But I would say if you want to learn more about us, the best way is just to go to www.vrahode.com. And then there's a, there's a button on there that says join us. That's the landing page. And that's where you can sign up to get our monthly email. That'll let you know where we are in, in the process. Um, but a quick snapshot of where we are, I'm wrapping up the card decks for the entire series. The core box is written. The, fir the, the first expansion is rough written. Um, and that's, you know, that's a big chunk of the writing. Um, all of the assets are done. The dashboards are done. The miniature sculpts are done. Um, the Harbinger system is, has gone through 10 iteration processes. It is done. It is manufacturable. The artwork is done for the Harbinger room and hall tile. So there's a lot of things done. At this point, we're working through mostly just the writing because the writing is what takes the most time. And I think, I think so many people are going to appreciate not only the robustness of our system, but just how amazing the writing is that Sean and his his writing cohort have have done for us. Sounds incredible. And I, I really appreciate the fact that you're uh, planning well ahead for your Kickstarter, making sure you have everything in place and you're not worried to push it back if things aren't ready, because, you know, that's one of the one of the big things. Don't launch unless you're ready for it. Unless you built the audience, you have everything in place that you're comfortable with. You're better off just holding it back. You know, there's there's no shame in uh, in pushing it back a little bit and being ready so you can launch with more success. No, and we've got a really good group of of uh, backers, over 1,600 followers now on the email campaign that are with us. Um, we're listening to them. We're making changes based on their advice to make the game play as playable as we can and, and as enjoyable. So no, we're we're approaching this with humility. We're trying to approach it with patience, which is not my long suit. Um, 
but we really want to make this something special. And I owe that to the international team of artists and writers that we have from around the world that I owe them that. Wonderful. Well, Jeff, it's been wonderful talking with you. It's uh, been super interesting hearing about your, your system and your game that you've put together. And I really appreciate you being here on the Board Game Binge. Well, Joe Slack, I appreciate you as well. And I hope that you and I can sit down someday soon, maybe at a con, and play some Brahode together. I think it'll be a blast. Sounds great. <laughs> Thanks again, Jeff. Thank you, Joe. Have a great day. You too. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast. Guest hosted by Joe Slack. Produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner. With original music by Nick Smith. If you'd like to watch these interviews live, simply subscribe to our Instagram channel, Board Game Binge Podcast. And you'll get notifications of the live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. We can't wait for you to join us. See you next time. Oh,